This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Insider Protocol. Crypto is not partisan. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. It's a people thing. Entrepreneurship opportunities, uh, opportunities to innovate, employment opportunities. And uh, perhaps the biggest one to me is the opportunities for capital formation. These are all nonpartisan issues. These are the opportunities that crypto has to offer to not just the United States, but all the countries on the globe. You've got over 55 million Americans that already invested in crypto. Why is uh, the SEC making such strong statements? I think one Gensler uh, is, he's great at scaring innovation away, but I think he's also confusing the marketplace with these uh, radical statements. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. This week, we continue our examination of the regulatory environment for the cryptocurrency industry. Following last week's discussion on the rapidly changing outlook with Coindesk Policy and Regulation Managing Editor Nick Day, and Ice Miller Public Affairs lawyer, Jared Lodeholt. We're extremely lucky to be joined today by someone who can give us real insights into how the legislative sausage is made in DC. Our guest is Congressman Tom Emmer of Minnesota, a co-chair of the Congressional Blockchain Caucus, who has carved out a role for himself as one of the leading voices for crypto reform on Capitol Hill. And we couldn't have timed this any better. Our conversation is being recorded just one day after news at the Securities and Exchange Commission had threatened Coinbase, the highest profile company in the industry, with a lawsuit if it pursues a new stablecoin lending program that it has been exploring. As I argue in the Money Reimagined newsletter this week, what's a bothersome factor about this action is that it highlighted the lack of visionary lawmaking that should be applied to the industry growing up around this transformative technology. As billionaire Mark Cuban said in a tweet in support of Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong's rather feisty criticism of the SEC, We need the kind of thinking that existed in Washington in the 1990s around early internet regulation, which helped the industry grow and enable innovation. And there's something that we've discussed on a number of occasions on this podcast. Instead, we're stuck with an increasingly litigious SEC applying rules that, while possibly fitting in a letter of the law sense, are leaving no ground for the prospect that crypto products could be hugely beneficial to the public. I mean, what good does it serve to kill off a chance for people to earn 4% on their daily stablecoins when their banks are paying them zero. The strident critiques of Bitcoin and other crypto services from influential players like Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren are making it harder to legislate against this activity. However, as we discussed last week, there is hope that with the industry's more prominent presence in Washington, more lawmakers and regulators will start to take a more open mind in the months and years ahead. What's also very encouraging is the true bipartisan nature of the support the industry enjoys among those lawmakers such as the three senators who supported an amendment in its favor to the crypto monitoring provision in the infrastructure bill. By way of example, Congressman Emma is a Republican, while his co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus is Bill Foster, a Democrat from Illinois. I'm really looking forward to hearing 
how this rare crossing the aisle coordination is playing out. But before we do, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Wong. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So what did you make of the Coinbase? I mean, (laughs) it was out of the blue, of course. Pretty atypical for a public company to come out in the way that Coinbase did. To say the least, yeah. So much to be said about that alone, right? I mean, the choice of Twitter as a medium to kind of log this complaint, to do this in an extensive thread, to do it as publicly as it was done, to reveal, you know, the nuance of the relationship that Coinbase has been trying to create with the SEC. A lot of that was just novel, uh, as the space is novel, as we see a lot of things happening in this dynamic environment that we call crypto. So there's that piece of it, but there's also just the kind of the logic behind this is a little hard to understand. There's, it's an obvious thing to have done on the part of the SEC, particularly the request for the list of prospects who signed up to even just gauge excess interest, to even express yeah. interest in potentially using this kind of service. Uh, that is unprecedented uh, to my it, knowledge. So, yeah. Spooky almost. It just seemed invasive, you know? It, it's odd. It's odd to say the yeah. least. And so I, I think it does kind of cause us to question, like, what are the goals? What should the goals be around this space? Now, to the point you made about early days of the internet, you know, as I recall, we had when we had Marvin Amori on, now GC of Uniswab, he was an early internet guy, big net neutrality person. And when you listen to him talk about this topic, he, he points out regularly, it wasn't that there was so much openness on the part of the legislature to this. It was that there was a tremendous effort by really a pretty small group of individuals to do a lot of education in a short period of time and to mm. make the case that regulating technology was generally not a great idea. And I think those same ideas, I would argue, really do apply to this current space. The challenge, of course, is the equation of the technology with the applications, the fact that money is involved makes the thing a lot more challenging you know, for everybody. So how do we make sure we're landing the message as an industry, as an ecosystem, what is it that is in scope to be regulated? What is it that maybe, you know, really we should be steering clear of? So, yeah. yeah. Got Congressman Emmeron because, I, I mean, he's been this crypto lobby, this the emerging industry place in Washington is, is I think, the critical part. It, it does hark back to those days that Marvin was referring to in the internet yeah. days in that sense. One thing that Mark Cuban said as well, I mean, Mark Cuban is also very feisty in his comments <laughs> on Twitter, but saying that, you know, referring to what the SEC is doing as kind of like regulation by litigation. Mm-hmm. And it's this need to actually establish some sort of framework law on this, I think is important. So well, let's talk to a lawmaker. Let's, let, let's bring <laughs> let's him in. Congressman Emma, welcome to Money Reimagined. Great to be with you, Michael, and you, Sheila. I do have to thank you. you not that I feel like I have to hand you a brown paper bag with money in it, but you have been a vocal supporter of my book, which I'm always thrilled about that it, that it played a role. I don't want to go into that just to say that, you know, look it up somewhere. You know, it's been recorded. Congressman has generously talked at times about how uh, the book that Paul Vineyard and I wrote, The Age of Cryptocurrency, was somewhat influential in, in his uh, coming around to being interested in this space. How about, uh, you know, without taking up much time, Michael, how about I just tell anybody who's listening, it's a great place to start. You, you want to get by, understand what you're dealing with. You guys did such a great job of laying out that initial one. I told you before we started today, I'm looking forward to the sequel. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> no pressure, Michael. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, thanks so much for doing this. You know, as, as I mentioned in my monologue, what I find, one of the things I find really interesting about the way that the caucus is structured, obviously, we had the, the three you know, senators who supported the amendment, unfortunately 
not successfully, for the provision of the infrastructure bill from both parties. There is this interesting bipartisan crossing the aisle element to this. Why is that the case? Like, what is it about this particular topic that tends to transcend the party, partisan politics of Washington? And what does it mean for how the legislation, as it develops, goes forward? Well, I, I would start out by saying, Michael, in response, crypto is not partisan. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a Democrat thing. It's, uh, it's a people thing. Entrepreneurship opportunities, uh, opportunities to innovate, employment opportunities. And uh, perhaps the biggest one to me is the opportunities for capital formation. Uh, these are all nonpartisan uh, issues. And these are the opportunities that crypto has to offer to not just the United States, but all the countries on the globe. The issue here, though, uh, in the U.S. is we got to get our regulatory regime. We need some clarity to make sure we keep our innovators on our shores and we don't uh, push about. Plus, I got to tell you, we got to keep crypto uh, policy bipartisan. And I uh, the go-to bipartisan group is the blockchain caucus, which you have been referencing when you talk about people like Bill Foster and myself and Darren Soto, others. Uh, we've actually grown it over the last uh, couple of Congresses. And it is, I believe, the go-to group when it comes to uh, crypto and uh, innovation in this area. Mark Cuban, all I'll say about him since I don't know him is he has a lot of opinions. But the ones that you read, Michael, uh, specifically, I would call it regulation through enforcement, not necessarily litigation, even though that's where uh, a lot of it ends up. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to hear, Congressman, about just how did the Watching Caucus come to be? I mean, was it tough to pull together? Did people kind of, did they all read Michael's book and all kind of decided that I've made sense? Or what was the motivation for people to join that? Because it started pretty early on in this space. So Michael's book actually came from one of my favorite staffers of all time that I told him that uh, I know he's at home mining and doing all this other stuff. <laughs> and you guys should understand the other thing that's a benefit for me as a 60 year old guy is I have seven kids, right? Uh, age 31 down to age uh, 20, soon to be 21. They're thinking much differently than me and my generation did because they grew up with different things. And once I started to delve into it, you see these kids are seeing in 3D. They're not seeing in two dimension. They're seeing in three or more. They're able to do things uh, in an abstract fashion that we could never do. When this started, the book was my uh, toe in the water, if you will. And it was like, now I couldn't get enough. Now I needed more. But there were a couple of drivers for the Blockchain Caucus, a Republican, Mick Mulvaney, a Democrat, Jared Polis, who's now the uh, governor of Colorado, were two of the main ones. I will also call out David Schweiker, although I, I love David. Uh, he's like a walking computer. And I tell him, hey, the difference between us is, you know, I'm not smart enough to talk in the terms you do. I talk to people on the street in terms that I understand. So hopefully they do. And uh, you're going to have to have a lot of messengers because you got a lot of people on the spectrum of knowledge when it comes to this area. But that's where it started with uh, Mulvaney and, and Pullis just a few people. Yeah. And now it's grown. I, I haven't looked at the recent number, but I think we're close to 20 uh, people who are now uh, uh, members of the Blockchain Caucus. Yeah, it, it's really taken off. And I think that you've seen a commensurate engagement from the industry. So I think, you know, one of the things that frustrated me early on in this space was this kind of lack of, of awareness on the part of some of the major even crypto players about the importance of bringing along and educating 
not just regulators, but legislators, what are the implications here? And this kind of like, no, we're going to escape velocity on these things. We don't, we're not going to be regulated. We're unregulatable, this kind of thing, which I always thought was extraordinarily naive. And I think what you saw around this infrastructure bill was a lot of those people and others kind of a reckoning, you know, that this is really highly relevant. It's an excellent use of your time. And you saw this kind of mobilization by a lobby of somewhat sometimes unlikely bedfellows, people who hadn't necessarily played nicely with each other or gotten along, uh, that did create this massive outpouring, um, uh, both financially to fund some of the lobbying and all that kind of thing. And I'm just curious, how has that shifted, if at all, the awareness of the industry in Congress? I mean, there was a lot of activity, a lot of discussion about this pretty minor pay for within this much bigger bill, but it got a lot of attention. So I'm curious about the standing, if you will. Uh, first off, I mean, incredibly timed, right? Crypto was once an emerging technology. And what my colleagues have to understand, and many of them are quickly getting up to speed, it has emerged. It's no longer an emerging technology. It has emerged. You've got over 55 million Americans that already invested in crypto. It's not going the other way. And I'm going to suggest to both of you, because uh, I can't remember which one of you was saying it in the introduction, but you were asking why. Why is uh, the SEC making such strong statements? I think one, Gensler, uh, is, he's great at scaring innovation away, but I think he's also confusing the marketplace with these uh, radical statements. And you asked, why? Why would you do this? I mean, you've got uh, a great company, Coinbase, that's offering a product, Len, that they haven't even launched yet. They want to offer stable coins that can uh, return interest, as Michael was talking about earlier. Great concept. And they've already got people interested in doing it. But now you've got the SEC essentially telling them that they're going to have a long, winding road of litigation to pursue this thing. Think about this for a second. Regulatory ignorance, and I would suggest perhaps some complicity, is driving crypto opportunities overseas. It's, uh, you look at Janet Yellen of the Treasury. Uh, she actually lobbied Senator Portman's office for the uh, crypto paid for that we're talking about. It was a bad idea. Uh, it would have put reporting requirements on crypto entities that simply couldn't comply, like miners. They don't have the information. We've talked about Gensler. He wants to regulate crypto to the full extent of his authority. And then he wants Congress to give him even more authority. And now he wants to come after uh, DeFi. And uh, obviously, we talked about Coinbase and Len. Michael Sewitt, the OCC, wants to reevaluate the fintech charters on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, I would argue the OCC should never be picking winners and losers. And lastly, you got Jay Powell at the Fed who believes, he said this publicly, if the Fed crafts a central bank digital currency, there will be no need for crypto or stable coins. And that's his main argument for uh, uh, crafting a central bank uh, digital currency. So two things, Sheila, and I'll stop. One, you've got a lot of people that are now realizing there's something here and it's real. And when I say a lot of people, I mean in Congress. Uh, we know the industry. We know people invested in the industry. They know that what's there and the opportunities and they're trying to drive them forward. But this episode that occurred over in the Senate, when the misguided treasury incented Portman Amendment was offered, and then you had a whole bunch of people starting to get up. I will tell you, my preferred amendment was the Cruz Amendment that would have eliminated this. You got to ask yourself how they came up with the 28 billion that they said this was going to generate in new revenues. And why are they doing all this? You guys starting to ask the questions. Is it possibly because crypto presents a challenge to uh, federal currency that is being inflated? 
at levels we haven't seen in 30 years? Is it because perhaps the government is talking about collecting information now on any bank account, uh, credit union account of $600 or more? There's a whole bunch of questions that need to be asked here. Why this group is trying to clamp down and control it when, in fact, what we should be doing is loosening up. And I think that Cuban remark about the light touch that was handled back with the Internet in the 90s, that's really where we should be looking. But there are some questions that we all got to start asking. I think Republicans and Democrats alike need to understand this is an opportunity that we do not want to miss. After climbing 1,400% in total value loft last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs, and QuantStamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit quantstamp.com blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and BarnBridge trust QuantStamp to fulfill their security needs. That's quantstamp.com slash blog to learn more. The Insider Protocol presents the first high-frequency trading Bitcoin bot. Our upcoming version 2.0 algorithms are specifically made for our hedge fund clients, but we're making them available for you. Besides going to Binance.Launchpad, the team will be integrating Binance Smart Chain into the ecosystem in the first quarter of 2022. The Insider Protocol is an entire ecosystem of projects consisting of Atlas Dex Swap, a Mimblewimble-based blockchain, DeFi, and our upcoming Dex Change. For more information, visit InsiderProtocol.com. That's InsiderProtocol.com. So you mentioned uh, the, the man on the street. It seems to me that this is the other part of the story here, obviously, right? So we've got the crypto industry. They're in there talking to you guys instead of starting to make some, some traction against this other pushback that you were just describing. But the public perception, notwithstanding the 50 million or so who are invested in this right now, I think is still being led by a lot of these concerns. And part of it, I think, is, yes, some scaremongering in certain places, but the industry itself still, you know, <laughs> has this sort of wild frontier, like anything goes sort of slight madness to it sometimes. And I just think, you know, what, what do you think is the best way to get the public around? Because you're talking about zero interest rates and the opportunity to earn four. And now, you know, in the column that's coming out, sometimes when people see higher interest rates, they think, well, this is something shady, right? This is pointing to something else, but there's all these other complicated factors that allow for a more attractive offering to the general public. But those are really complex issues for the average person to understand. Instead, they get, you know, Bitcoin has this massive carbon footprint and it facilitates money laundering and criminals and all these sorts of things. And some of that, to be honest, has elements of truth to it. And there is really a need for a sort of a nuanced education, which is difficult in the kind of five second grab world of television. How do we get to the average person and, and let them see that there's, there's opportunities here? Can I just chime in really, really quickly, Congressman? Just one, one thing I think that is so challenging in this space is because some of these criticisms are fact-based, they're not invented totally out of the blue, to Michael's point, but someone's grabbing the tail, someone's grabbing the ear, someone's grabbing the foot, someone's grabbing the trunk, and they're not talking about the entire elephant, right? So how do you get people to understand that yeah, some of these things might be true, but they're not being contextualized. There's just this general lack of nuance in the conversation or contextualization. 
I just wanted to make that point as well and then really eager to hear your response. I would start with as long as there are human beings, you're going to have good ones, which I think most human beings are good and directed at, at appropriate things. And then you're going to have bad people. When it comes to uh, bad people, I'm going to tell you if I'm going to compare crypto versus cash, cash is still the preferred measure of exchange or method of exchange for the bad guys. doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. you won't have stuff that happened in the crypto space, but I find more and more that when someone doesn't understand what they're talking about with crypto or when crypto scares them because of their ignorance and they're, they're worried about it, you know what their go-to is? Well, this is Silk Road and this is where all the nefarious bad people hang out. The facts don't support that. Uh, the colonial pipeline hack that they held it for ransom. I think it was Russian hackers. They recovered all of that. You've got story after story. And I think to Michael's point, again, you've probably figured out that the reason that I am a fan of crypto is because it allows human beings, if it's done right, to have a method of exchange, an exchange for value that will not involve a middleman who's collecting the VIG, in this case, the federal government. That excites me. That's uh, giving people more control over their own lives, their self-determination of where they want to go and who they want to be. It gives people all kinds of financial opportunities that just haven't existed up till now. It uh, puts some populations where, for instance, uh, women in certain cultures haven't been allowed into the banking system. Now they can get access into the banking system. And you're right, Michael. It, it can be very complex, but I think you can put it in terms that people understand when we talk about on this side, I have an industry that's about a sixth of our population now, 55 million people and growing every day. You got to ask yourself, these people are talking about growing opportunities for themselves and people around them and having a less friction type exchange of value, new opportunities on how to earn additional value, et cetera. And on the other side, what do I have? Their answer to what ails this country is hiring 80,000 new employees at the IRS. Their answer is trying to put a wet blanket on this industry because they want control over all the data. You guys should ask the question, why would uh, the SEC not only suggest to Coinbase that uh, we're going to come after you if you try to go through with offering uh, this uh, LEND program? And by the way, we want your customer list. We want all the people, the identities of all the people who have said they're interested in signing up for this product. This is the two different things. And I think uh, nuance, Michael, uh, on top of the nuance, which is opportunity, uh, financial opportunity, capital formation opportunity, employment opportunities, we need to be talking to not only members, but to staff. Their staff are incredibly influential with the members. Uh, the industry needs to do a lot of this educating. We're trying to do it through the blockchain caucus. You should also be talking to staff at the Treasury, to staff at the CFTC, to staff, uh, by the way, career staff uh, at the SEC and at the FDIC and others within this alphabet soup of agencies in Washington, D.C. But at the end of the day, that's the, uh, the clash that I see. And I'm sorry, Michael, I just, uh, Sheila, I guess you added it at the end. I think the go-to, even though you're going to find bad people, no matter what we're talking about, that's why we have a rule of law. I just think people who don't understand what they're talking about or crypto scares them because it's something new. That's their go-to, that this is Silk Road and this is all about the bad guys. When the vast majority are people that are entrepreneurs and trying to grow this industry and grow their opportunities, which in turn lifts uh, everyone else's boats.
Now, you know, as, as you might know, I, I worked with, with Gary Gensler for a little bit at, uh, at MIT, and I do tend to agree with his broad concept that, you know, any technology, any transformative technology is going to do better within, as he put it, like the framework of, of you know, within or within, inside the regulatory framework, whether outside of it. So that's a very broad concept, right? I mean, you could argue crypto is still, it is already regulated. But what I think he's trying to get at is like giving clarity to that, which I think lots of people in crypto would support. But it seems to me that the, the default on that is to apply the sort of the bludgeon of securities laws to things which just may well be letter of the law, something that you would go after, but doesn't allow for the capacity of stuff to grow. So it occurs to me, as I again in the column, I, that I would have thought the CFPB would be a better agency to look after crypto lending because you want to make sure that consumers aren't being duped. But the minute you bring securities laws into it, you literally just shut out anybody who is a mum and pop investor and you make it that the only people that can engage in this are wealthy accredited investors, which just exacerbates the divide and cuts it out. So it, it seems to me like it's the choice of regulator or it's the choice of approach that needs to be brought into here, not just this, well, it's an unregistered security by our reading of the law. So boom, there's a turf war, people are saying, going on in, in Washington around this. Is there a way to play these guys against each other and maybe lift up an alternative agency to come in and, and do a better job of what would be supportive for the American people? First off, there has to be a better way, Michael, because the way we're doing it right now, I think, is presenting all kinds of challenges to entrepreneurial activity in this country. I sat down with a guy a few months ago who said that he had a $1.4 billion project that because he just doesn't know how things are going to be handled here in the U.S., he started it in the British Isles. So. We're already losing opportunities. I will point out, I'm not a fan of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, not because I, I just uh, disagree with it, but because it has no supervision. When Congress created that uh, entity, they failed to put it under the umbrella of congressional oversight and decision-making. So it, it's got no curbs. It's got no uh, guide rails. At times, uh, in my opinion, overreaching and doing things that are, are harmful in the marketplace. But your bigger point, they talk about a turf war, but I'll, I'll put it back on you. Uh, I don't know that it's a turf war because I would suggest that they're fighting for, uh, for jurisdiction. No, they all assume they already have it. All right. The big issue is we should be able to have better definitions for what is a currency, what is a security, what is a commodity. You know, we've, we've tried to shoehorn a lot of this into the Howey test that was created with an orange girl. It had nothing to do with, uh, with crypto, and it's long before crypto came on the scene. Uh, we've offered a bill, now a uh, second Congress in a row, called the Securities Clarity Act, which distinguishes digital assets from the securities contract they may or may not have been a part of at one point. And it does this by amending securities law to include a new definition, both investment contract asset. Tokens are investment contract assets. And it's important because, again, the SEC is regulating by enforcement act, which pushes these uh, opportunities out of, uh, out of this country. And a bill like this, or maybe someone's got a better idea uh, in the industry, and I'd love to hear it, a bill like this would provide the SEC with a framework to swiftly determine when a token is offered as part of a securities contract and when a token is not, right? If it's not part of a securities contract, back to your initial point, Michael, it shouldn't be regulated by the SEC. I think that clarity piece is going to be uh, incredibly important going forward because right now they all believe they have a piece. You know, it's the FDIC, the CFTC, 
the SEC, I mean, Treasury, they all believe that they have some jurisdiction over this area. And then you have people like uh, Gensler, who I don't know if you know this, Michael, but I went to the MIT of the uh, Northwest. It was called the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, Alaska. We have a lot in common, but Mr. Gensler is probably a great guy. I haven't spent much time with him. But when he's making these strong statements publicly in his position at the SEC, it just confuses the marketplace further, and it, it, uh, it's going to have a chilling impact on development. Isn't it possible that, or I would argue it is the case, that the fact that all these different agencies do sort of, first it was a hot potato, nobody really wanted to have to deal with it. Now everybody wants a piece of it, right? They all want to kind of be able to regulate a part of it. And that regulation or that desire to regulate is not crazy because there are aspects of crypto that do mimic certain things that I think we would all agree do fall within the purview of those different agencies. But there are many things about crypto that do not fall within the purview of the agency. It doesn't fit cleanly into any of these boxes, I would say, of this alphabet soup. That's exactly why it's so interesting, right? That's what the innovation is about, is the fact that it is a new thing. It doesn't fall cleanly into what's come before. And so we're seeing so many attempts to shove the round peg into the square hole, right? Like to kind of make it and force it to act like a thing it's not. And what I, what I really worry about is I talk a lot about premature regulation, the idea that things take the shape you give them. So if you, if you pour water into a square box, well, you have a square box of water, right? This is actually acting symbiotically with the industry to shape what is actually possible. And that's the big concern. But I, I think it's fair to say that the reason why these agencies are trying to kind of wrestle for jurisdiction or control over it is because there are parts of it that do make sense. It's just that none of them can actually control the entirety of it. Yeah, Sheila, I mean, it goes back to what Michael said earlier, too. You shouldn't advocate for no regulation. Uh, that's certainly not what I'm talking about, nor are my colleagues talking about that. I do appreciate Michael's reference to the wild, wild west. Uh, but remember, that's what the uh, internet was when it started. I think if you look what I've been doing, and I think what policymakers should be doing, uh, is creating safe harbor situation. Rather than try to create this, uh, we're going to assume bad acts before they happen, and therefore we're going to build some type of framework that we think is going to protect you from yourself, citizen. How about we create uh, safe harbors so that innovators in this country can move forward. And as something clearly falls into one or the other, then we know where the jurisdiction lies. But you don't get penalized for what's behind you. Uh, you actually uh, start to further define the regulatory jurisdictional territories as you move forward. And by the way, it also gives policymakers uh, and rule makers the opportunity to actually craft policy that applies to actual real life current examples, as opposed to trying to imagine something uh, that hasn't happened yet. How much do you think that what's happening in other jurisdictions affects the approach that it, maybe an agency, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a party, maybe a particular branch is, is taking? I mean, certainly we saw a lot more activity out of the Fed, a lot more statements when China came out with digital yuan, right? Like there, unsurprisingly, there was suddenly a lot more <laughs> uh, public statements and things like that being made by the Fed. But also, I think, as we've seen, you know, the EU, Mika, like other kinds of things that have happened in other places, how much is that playing into this? Well, again, I have opinions here. I was giving Mark Cuban a hard time. I have some strong opinions about this. 
why, uh, for goodness sakes, would the United States of America, with our free uh, economy, our free market economy, with the rights that we celebrate of individuals to self-determine, why, for goodness sakes, would we ever want to try and follow China's lead when it comes to digital authoritarianism? If you could create a central bank digital currency that is open, permissionless, and private, maintaining the privacy elements of cash, which be very interesting if someone could do that. I don't think we should be looking for China, to China, for inspiration as far as a central bank digital currency. And we should never allow the Federal Reserve to mobilize itself into a retail bank that's able to collect all sorts of information on the American people and track their transactions. I believe we, we have to protect privacy at all costs. And this is going to be one of those watershed moments in our history because I think crypto the way it's developing, as long as government doesn't get in the way with senseless, inappropriate policymaking and rulemaking, I think this is the next great opportunity to advance our economy. And it's going to be for years to come. On the other hand, if we don't get up to speed and we continue to follow the lead of someplace like China when it comes to a central bank digital currency, I think that's a problem. And, and keep in mind, uh, money, opportunity will go to uh, wherever uh, it moves the easiest. So if it's not moving in this country, I think these people here, uh, and I'm going to talk about the ones that have been very critical about uh, crypto, uh, the ones that want to hire 80,000 new IRS agents, the ones that want to collect all this information on bank accounts, $600 or greater, the ones that literally are printing money that's uh, a floating currency and flooding the uh, marketplace, uh, driving inflation with an interrupted supply chain. I think those people should be very concerned that the wrong policies and the wrong messages, it doesn't even have to be the policies, the wrong statements being made are going to drive a whole bunch of capital and opportunity outside of the United States. And Sheila, where that ends up, we'll find out. But I think whoever uh, creates the opportunity for it to grow and flourish, again, not the wild, wild west with absolutely no regulation, but with a light touch regulation with opportunities to innovate and not be punished when something doesn't go exactly right, but we can learn from the experience and fix it going forward. I think whoever creates that opportunity, I really hope it's here in the U.S., is going to benefit greatly. You know, it's one of interesting watching the kind of penny drop, the moments of certain people within Washington who suddenly get it and start to say something really quite insightful in this regard. And certainly within the context of what you're talking about, the idea that there is this international challenge that the US needs to be rising, that's the moment which I think a number of different bodies and people, there was a story you know, around the time of the infrastructure bill, the journal ran citing these intelligence officials who were just saying, this clause needs to go because we're terrified that money will actually disappear into the dark corners overseas and we need to be able to sort of keep it, you know, all right here, which is a, a different way of thinking about it. It's still monitoring, but it's like this idea that we've got to actually have somewhere of an open system so that we don't make it even worse for them. But then you got Randall Qualls, I think the vice governor at the Fed, a lot of people in crypto were just delighted with his speech, not only because he was embracing the idea of an open permissionless approach and sort of looking at stable coins as something that is a reflection of an innovative way to build on money rather than the old model. But I think also because it was, again, framed in this international context, it struck me as similar to the internet. And Qualys seemed to capture that, that zeitgeist, that idea that if we just let stable coins blossom, 
it's a very US story, it's not necessarily, but it would be something that would be very beneficial to the United States. How much is that mindset taking hold? I mean, is there, is there a positive story here? Guys like him and others starting to say, hey, this is a different approach. This is how we differentiate ourselves from China. This is how we innovate the American way. Is that something that uh, you're seeing at all? You know, it's really interesting that you bring up Randy Quarles. You know, one of my colleagues, French Hill and uh, Mr. Quarles, way back, I think they go back to the Treasury under H.W. Uh, Bush. And I would have called these people, I'm not as close, obviously, to Mr. Quarles, but I am to French. Uh, they're more traditional banking guys. But to the story that you just went to, they have done this homework. This is exactly what we've been talking about through this whole interview is what's taking hold in Congress. Were you talking about two guys that worked at the Treasury 30 years ago that would normally be of the mindset, well, this is the way we've always done it. We got to tinker here. We got to tinker there. This is a bad thing. No, they've actually been learning it, getting up to speed. I think Mr. Quarles, for his part, recognizes the potential opportunity. I don't know if he's quite made that final leap to where somebody like I am, and I love to talk to him about it. I'll probably do that when we're back sometime in the next month. But you do see this starting to take hold, uh, Michael. It's the opportunities that we stand to lose, the ones that we've already lost and the opportunities we stand to lose. And just think about a world where the uh, United States of America did not lead with the internet development. I mean, we were one of the leaders uh, because of that incentive to get people in and grow it and then learn it and figure out, you know, today we've got issues with it, right? But we know what those issues are. We know what policies we could apply to them uh, to deal with them. Uh, And I'm referring to certain liability issues and others, but we've been doing that all along. Crypto, I think it is taking hold. You know, back to what Sheila brought up at the very beginning about the debate on this infrastructure bill, you might not be surprised. I wasn't pleased that somebody went and pulled this out of of the air and Clearly, to find out that it was uh, lobbied by uh, the uh, Treasury Secretary was interesting. But the good part about it was they had to have a substantive conversation about crypto on the Senate floor. If that isn't light years ahead of where we were just six years ago, Michael, I have high hopes as we go forward that this is going to pick up even more. You just mentioned the, the bill, though, the infrastructure bill, and it, it did seem like this kind of watershed moment. Where do we go from here? Because it, it did look like we almost got the amendment through to amend the amendment, if you like. But now in your house, procedural vote that basically said they're not going to really vote on that. And you're going to have to just do a straight up vote on the, on the bill itself. So unless there's a miracle, it seems to me it's going to be brought into law. The word we're hearing is it not the end of the world. There's all sorts of other ways in which you know this thing can be resolved. But what are the next steps? How do we deal with the problematic catch-all that 99 out of 100 senators seem to agree was problematic, and yet it's going to be law? How do we deal with the problems that that creates? You know, I don't think it's going to be law. Hmm. I'm, I'm not uh, where you're at. I, I think we're going to find out. I'll know much better when we get back in the 20th interesting uh, experience we're about to go through. We'll have 10 days to uh, keep the government running because our annual uh, budgeting process deadline is September 30th at midnight. Uh, Mm. You've got this infrastructure bill that they call a bipartisan infrastructure bill that came over from the Senate. It does have that bad language in it. Let's just say somehow it did become law, right, with that bad language. The good news, if there is any, is that it really has 
not that crypto wasn't uh, activated, but boy, it kicked everybody in the tail. It's like, we really got to get moving on this because these people in Washington can cause some serious headaches for the industry, especially with uh, amendments like this. So one, it, it's really, I think, created a whole new level of engagement from the industry itself and the players. Two, keep in mind, the bill uh, actually wouldn't become effective until 2023. So we've got a couple of uh, uh, Congresses, at least one, uh, in between that we can fix it. We'll have plenty of time to uh, try and fix it. And like you say, again, assuming it did somehow pass and become law, you had uh, 99 out of 100 senators that knew this was a bad idea when it came out of the uh, Senate and over to the House. And I I can tell you the uh, Blockchain Caucus knows this is a horrible idea. And even though my uh, good colleague, who I do a lot of work with, Darren Soto from Florida, he's got a proposal to fix it in the reconciliation bill. And that's really a difficult lift because that's going to be such a partisan piece of legislation. I don't think it's going to afford any Republican an opportunity to vote for it. So I don't have a lot of hope in that as well. But going forward, two things I'll finish. One, it's really engaged the industry. I guess it's three things. Two, uh, you've got a lot of older Americans that serve in Congress that had no understanding what this was, I guarantee you, two or three years ago that are quickly getting up to speed with their staffs. And then three, we will have time to fix it, Michael. You know, I think, Congressman, you make such an excellent point right there. You know, all of it, but at the very end there, there is a generational thing going on here. You know, we have a lot of people Probably in the workforce now, sandwich generation who are digital native, you know, who went to college with email accounts or, or had that kind of availability of um, a mobile device, had a smartphone, whatever it was, whatever their engagement with that was. And, and I'm seeing, you know, my children, we talk about this a lot of time on the show, are going to be what I call crypto native. They're going to have this understanding of their own agency within these systems. And they're going to have certain expectations about how those systems operate and who they're serving. Uh, that are going to be different. And it's important, I think, for a lot of people in the industry to understand that when you're on crypto Twitter and you're dealing with, you know, memes and all this kind of thing, it's one sort of audience, but it's actually, it's a bubble in its own way. And there are an awful lot of other people we do want to bring on, not just because they're influential, because they're actually people that we should be thinking about building for and empowering. Retirement is a whole discussion. We could have a whole other hour on that topic in this country and how we're set up for that or not. Wouldn't it be something if we were able to give people this power that crypto can provide, you know, in, in their later years? You know what, uh, Sheila, you made me think of this. It'd be fun to do a survey of members of Congress who have been in Congress for the last six years, all right, last uh, three Congresses, and find out how many of them had Venmo accounts six years ago and how many of them have Venmo accounts today. That'd be something. You're thinking like a journalist here, Congressman. We could have you uh, get that survey done and CoinDesk would gladly run that story. I think we should actually definitely do this. So So on that note, we're going to have to wrap. But thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure as I expected it to be. We'll look forward to having you back on again sometime. Thanks, Michael. And thanks, Sheila. It's been fun. All righty. And as always, Sheila Warren, my co-host, thank you very much for your insights and questions to all of you viewers and listeners, depending on which format you're experiencing this. Thank you very much for your time. Come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Thank you. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and Congressman Tom Emmer. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. 
with announcements by Adam B. Levine and additional production support by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.